your bank accounts, like all of these very normal things that everybody has to do. I feel like if I did learn it in school, it was like one Tuesday, it was over, and I did not understand how badly I needed to be paying attention. And now. Hey, <laughs> hey. I'm the captain now. <laughs> Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sit off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for listening. And I am Chris. And I'm Christine. And welcome to episode 160 of the Chris and Christine Show. Oh, fantastic. 160 official podcast episodes, baby. Yeah, absolutely. So that means that we've now officially crossed the quote unquote three year mark, right? Like 52 weeks in a year times three. That means, I mean, we know we've been podcasting for longer than three years though, right? Well, we started this little fun adventure show in uh, 2019, the summer of 2019, as a little hobby thing like, hey, you want to try a podcast? And you're like, oh, I don't know. No, it wasn't. I don't know. It was, no, thank you. No, thank you. It's like a kid. I'm like, no, thank you. You can do it. I don't need it. No, well, thank you. I said, come on, babe. It'd be so much fun. It'd be so much fun, you know? If I had set boundaries, better boundaries for podcasting, we wouldn't be here today. We would be here today. We wouldn't be here today, which means that you all would have missed out on this thrilling content for 160 episodes. You're welcome, world. You are welcome. And you know, (laughs) the funny thing is, I remember when we first started, I was thinking that maybe, just maybe, we would probably just do maybe three to five episodes at the most and be like, that oh, was a fun little experiment. We could go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> now yes. it's like every week you're like, are we going to podcast? Are we going to podcast? Are we going to podcast? Like, okay. So we had to skip the past weekend because I had been super sick and I literally was in bed like all weekend long, just trying to rest and recover, even Super Bowl, Like, Everybody was downstairs partying and I was upstairs just like laying in bed and I came down for the first time and was like, finally, you know, everybody was gone. The house was a mess. You had just barely started cleaning up, but not much had been done. And then you come in and you lean against the wall and you're like, so are we going to podcast tonight? (laughs) And I'm like, I can barely speak because my my voice is so froggy. Uh, you may hear it. I call it my husky voice. Um, Sexy, really? <laughs> it's like it? been smoking a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know why guys think it's sexy. Like they're like, "Ooh, that sounds so good." I don't uh, know. Maybe it's, it's probably something to do with the same thing with like if you see girls that are like in mechanics outfits, you know that kind of stuff. You find that attractive? I y- maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You make no sense. So, anyways, you were like, "Can." Um, what did you say? You were like, can we podcast or something like that? Yeah, I was just asking you like, you know what? Here's the weekend. We're coming to the end of the weekend and we haven't released an episode yet. We haven't even sat down to record yet. And I have to go back to work and you have to go back to work and we're all busy. So I'm like, well, hey, are we going to podcast or yeah. not? Because it's mind the you, weekend. Mind you, everybody, Chris only checked on me at 3.33, which was three minutes after kickoff of Super Bowl and then left me upstairs for five hours without checking on me, without asking if I needed food or beverage. He invited all kinds of company over and was entertaining them downstairs. Didn't ask if like we could I have do. company. Yeah, I'm, I'm the host of the Moses. Yeah, didn't ask. He was just like, oh, we're, have, we're having a Super Bowl party. And I was like, we're what? 
fine. Okay. But you have to run it all because I can't be cooking because I'm sick and I'm technically still contagious. And so you didn't check on me. I was upstairs just lethargic as heck, you know, sipping on my ginger ale and, you know, coming, sneaking down and grabbing a few snacks here and there. And then like a little mouse running back upstairs to hide away and eat my cheese. And, oh, yeah. And then you come in and you're like, so are we podcasting? Well, listen. Clueless. I, ladies, like, clueless. Yeah, speak of clueless, that was a commercial in the Super Bowl this year what? with, with um, Alicia Silverstone. She reprised her role as Cher from the Clueless movie, and they did a whole commercial. And truth is, like most of these Super Bowl commercials, I have no idea what the product was about. I was just going to ask what it was. <laughs> but you remember the commercial about that kind of stuff. So you got the, you do watch any of the Super Bowl at all? I watched, um, I watched the concert. I watched, you know, the Rihanna concert that happened to be in the middle of when the Super Bowl was occurring. Because did you see the recent uh, information? Is that there were more viewers for the Rihanna concert at the Super Bowl halftime show than for the actual Super Bowl. I didn't hear that like part. Like 5 million more viewers. I didn't hear that part. But yep. what I did hear was that um, Twitter broke because people were commenting, Rihanna's pregnant? I know. When, since when did a woman's uh, fertility status become the subject of conversation? But, you know, here's the thing. I loved the Rihanna performance because it was focused on the music. Oh, and the, not, not so much all the glam and dancing right, and craziness, and not, like, the fireworks. There, right. I mean, there was a time where she paused for the fireworks, but people were like, oh, I didn't like it. Like, it wasn't as showy and da, da, da. It's like, that's the point is when you bring in a musician for a halftime show, you bring them in for their art, not for all of the other flashy stuff to distract from the fact of whether or not they can actually sing. Well... She was, I think, the first time a artist was physically pregnant to perform at a Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, yes, that is accurate. And, and I mean, the floating on those suspended stages, that was incredible. One thing, I don't know if you know this, because I've been doing a lot of research on the Super Bowl halftime show. Did you know that the artists actually don't get paid to perform? Someone saw, I saw that somewhere in a post that she didn't get paid, but... What they do get paid in is actually coverage and being in front of like millions of people. But exposure doesn't pay my bills. It can. Well, I mean, if it's like, okay, so she was There's on stage. people like my mom or my dad might be like, who is this Rihanna person? Now they know. Well, her, so she, when she was on stage, she opened up her Fenty compact and was like using her makeup and her lip gloss, which is her line of makeup. Oh, I get you. So then she's able to, you know, promote some of her own stuff. And I could see how... It would um, help with promoting some of her brands and her brand awareness because she launched um, the lipstick that she was wearing. She launched that color, right? It dropped right at the beginning of Super Bowl. So then people see it and they see her makeup and it's like this just dropped live. And so I see how they can monetize off of it. But I think it's really fascinating that Super Bowl performers don't actually get paid. They get a budget to produce and the, all of their dancers and team get compensated at the union level of the wages for the SAG-AFTA performers. But um, she didn't get some huge wad of cash to walk away. It's not like a concert where you go in and you get a ton of money to perform. You know, something tells me that I think she will be just fine. Yeah, I mean, she is a, I mean, she's a billionaire. She's a multi-billionaire and a very smart businesswoman. So I don't know if many people know this, but um, she 
has not only her makeup line, but she has um, a women's intimate wear line that's been pretty popular for the last several years. Oh, I had no idea. I mean, how would I know that? Yeah, it's called Savage X Fenty. Ooh, crazy. And then Fenty is her um, her makeup cosmetics brand also. And she has a lot of other things going on, but I just thought like it was very interesting. And I loved that she didn't announce her pregnancy. She just like showed up and did her thing and left people wondering. And then after confirmed it. Yeah. I mean, you, you everyone was tweeting and talking all about it, wondering like she was pregnant. Cause you're looking at it, like that's a little bump in the front. So, and some people were just saying that maybe it's just her post pregnancy kind of like, you know, bump that women have after they have a, they give birth. Cause she gave birth like not that long ago. Right. Yeah, totally. She's nine months postpartum. Uh, but what's interesting is she's done a couple of photo shoots that have shown her postpartum body and it definitely didn't look like that. So I think that's where people were talking about it. But bottom line is Riri is a queen. She is a queen of all things amazing. And I think it was so phenomenal that she just let her music stand for her for itself and like put on a performance that was really about the music and not as much about the showmanship. I mean, of course she had all of her dancers, but even then it wasn't like, I mean, a couple, was it last year that was the throwback with all of the different like 1990s rap stars? Oh, that's right. It was, it was all, it was all rap. rap Like all these special guests that came in. And so there was a lot of talk on, you know, Rihanna didn't um, have special guests come in and it was just her. And I'm like, if I was to get the Super Bowl feature, why would I be? I mean, yes, lift other people up with you. But if they picked me, why would I be like, oh, I'm going to share the stage with you? It's like, let her stand as her own performer. Well, they tried that a few years. I remember a while ago, they had this like mismatch of like different artists and different things. And, and it, for a while, I remember after the Janet, was it Janet Jackson had the screw up with the um, the nipple gate with the um, the pasty that came off in the Super Bowl. I think it was around that time it went on live television. Justin Timberlake ripped it off an accident or something like that. No, it wasn't on accident. It was on purpose. Whatever. He ended up apologizing later that it was on purpose. Well, whatever the case may be, is that right after that, the Super Bowl went into this old man group phase for a while. They had like. I don't think it was the Rolling Stones, but they had older bands. They were like, I think Tom Petty was on there at once. And let's talk about that for a minute, because you know me, anytime you give me a soapbox to talk about women's empowerment, that was one of the first times that a woman of color was allowed to have a position of prominence in the Super Bowl and in terms of performing. And then she was exploited by Justin Timberlake. Like, here, put a woman and put her like he's fully dressed put her in this skimpy outfit and then stage it so that he does this rip off thing and exposes her to the world literally. And then make it like, then people turned on her and about, you know, how, you know, trashy or whatever they wanted to say. Nobody turned around to look at the man and be like, you created the situation. It all became around her. And then it re- like reinforced people's belief systems about, you know, Oh, well male performers should be at the Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. That was such a crock. And that I, was so long ago, too. It was like 21 or 22. It was such a long time ago, I remember. Tw- 20, I mean, 2001? I'm sorry. Or? Yeah, 2001, 2002, 2003. Yeah, I don't know, but it still left a you know bad taste in people's mouths. I feel I feel for Janet Jackson. But you know, women, especially women of color, um, have had to overcome so much to be able to have the main stage to themselves as performers. I know that there was 
so much conversation around when Shakira and J-Lo were co-headlining the Super Bowl and they had to split oh, the time. Oh, I love that one. That's my favorite. But the thing is, is it was the first time that a Latina was allowed to headline and they didn't allow one. They chose two instead of selecting one and letting them have their moment. They chose two women to share the stage, which had never been done before, where they had to co like you didn't find two white male bands that had to co-headline. It was always you choose a headliner and they have an invited guest or two or 10. But women of color have had such a hard time being able to establish themselves as professional and being seen as being deserving of that stage that for Rihanna to be able to take the stage and be fully clothed and not expose her skin and to just perform was I feel like a statement of power. And I'm like, I was all into it. And then after she was done, I turned it off. I don't even know who won the game. Oh, really? Nope. Who won? Uh, the Padres. Um, I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. Thank you for telling me. I appreciate that. The Kansas City Chiefs won, of course. And, and Patrick Mahomes did what they always say they're going to do. He went to Disneyland. And in fact, the very next day at Disneyland... They did a full-on parade up and down Main Street where he was on the, uh, the parade float, waving to everybody, the whole crowd, the whole Disneyland thing. Then he went on Jimmy Kimmel the very, I think, the same night or the next day. So that was really what happened around Super Bowl and uh, why we missed last week. We didn't really put out a message of, hey, we're not going to put out an episode. It's just we've been taking this approach lately of, yes, we're consistent with our podcast episodes, but we're also trying to balance that with you know, living life as a family and being sensitive to each other's needs and health. And so I know that sometimes that means that we don't publish an episode for a week or so, but doesn't mean we don't love you any less to our dear listeners. Yes, exactly. We appreciate you listening. Appreciate you sticking around. And in fact, if you were just listening, like batch, batch listening to all these episodes at one time, then there's no breaks at right. all. So it's not going to make a difference to you at all. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I appreciate us being able to record this episode, especially with me traveling so much for work. It's even though there's no weddings happening right now, it's definitely a busy season for me work wise and consulting wise and all of that jazz. And, you know, you've been super understanding. I was wondering, how is it that you make it through when I'm gone out of town for so long? Like, do you eat and shower? Um, sometimes. Yeah, uh, actually I do. I'm not like some sloth that sits here on the couch and watches Netflix all day. Hey, speaking of which, I can't find the remote for the TV set. I don't know where it is. But Which watch, remote? Uh, the one for the Netflix remote. I couldn't find it. Oh, it probably slid into the side cushions or something because I tend to watch Netflix every night. I'm on this binge run right now, Chris, that I, I don't know, something about like Grey's Anatomy is soothing to me. I'm watching. That has got to be that show gives me the chilly willies because it's all blood and guts and like <laughs> surgeries and like, you know, brain surgery and heart surgery and guts, you know, people getting killed on, on the operating. It's like one of the worst fears ever is going to the hospital and getting like going in for surgery, you know? That's so bizarre. I, I mean, I have a, a very different perspective growing up with a mom who's been in the medical field and she was an ICU nurse for much of my like teenage years. And so dinner table conversations would be about gross, bloody stuff and things like that. Well, she wouldn't show you pictures on them, would she? Uh, well, she couldn't because of right. uh, privacy issues, but she was going through school to become a nurse when I was growing up. And so there would always be textbooks with, you know, different images and things like that. And 
she even had some of her best friends would send their sons over to have the talk when the quote unquote talk with my mom. Interesting. About, you know, being safe. We're going to keep this family. Uh, we're keeping this episode uh, family friendly. No, but, it's called Disney friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that my mom had some um, very graphic photos of worst case, worst case scenario of what would happen if you were promiscuous. And she would show those to the uh, male children as of her friends. Do, as you do. Yeah. yeah. And would say like, you know, this is your body. This is your body on, you know, not being safe. Is this what you would like? And so um, definitely grew up around that. So I, it really doesn't phase me. There's only certain things on Grey's Anatomy that trigger me. But also because I dealt with a, um, an incurable disease as a teenager and I had to be in the hospital a lot and have multiple surgeries. I think you just get used to the blood and guts. Um, yeah, I guess you would. I was kind of wondering about the paramedics or even if you're a uh, police officer or a highway patrol officer, they probably come to the scenes of a lot of that kind of stuff all the time. And it's got to be just, you know, I mean, you, you got to guess you got used to it. And, and, and I think the hard, one of the harder things is probably to tell the family and loved ones that you're whoever passed away and you have to really break the news to them and try yeah. to be a, you know, comforting as you can, but also try to, you have a job to do to get, you know, what you got to do to get out of there. Uh, I guess same thing with the doctor, like in the show Grey's Anatomy, when they're telling, oh, so-and-so passed away at this time or that, or we got to tell the family. And it's got to yep. be one thing I'm always curious about surgery or having going through surgery, because I've never had gone through actual surgery before. Wait, what? I've never had gone through it. You've never had surgery? Never. Come on now. What? Come on now, babe. Come no, on. seriously. I didn't know that. Like I, that's, that's well, blowing I, my mind okay, right I've now. I've had stitches done, you know, that kind of stuff. But you I, haven't oh, like had tonsils out or anything like anything that? Anything they put me under for? No, never. I've never had anything You've like never that. been under anesthesia? No, that's the thing I was going to ask you about is that when you go under like that, I've heard of horror stories where people wake up during the no. surgery and they, and they can't do anything about it. They wake up and see everything. They feel it's the super, pain. No, that's super, super rare. And normally your anesthesiologist can tell. Um, cause if you wake up, your eyes are going to be open and they're going to see you that you're actually awake. Um, but or they do it just like, uh, give you a shot of something, put you back out. Yeah. They push stuff right in to knock you back out. But so, so I've had multiple surgeries. I'm trying to think of how many I've had. So I had in high school, I had four and then I had Ezekiel. So that's five. And then I had. Um, a surgery when Ezekiel was 18 months old. So that's six. And you were out for all these? Oh, yeah. Major surgery. So in high school, my four that I had were because I had this disease that the only way to manage the symptoms was to go in and remove some of the um, tissue and the growth to help clean things out. And it was in my reproductive system. And so for that one, um, they were laparoscopic. So they just cut little uh, one inch or inch and a half long incisions. And I had four of them. Um, and they would just reuse those same entry points each time that I had to have my surgeries done. So, um, those scars, they just look like a, I mean, you can barely see them anymore. They just look as almost as if there was a burn, like a little burn okay. in a line. Uh, but for the anesthesia, it's crazy because when they put you out, you don't dream. You're like, it, I don't know. It's like they put you out. Are you sure? No, I, I hundred percent. It's 
it's like they put you out and then um you come back to and it's just like waking back up and you're like almost as if no time passed. Well, that's what it should be. Right. But it's different from like when you go to bed at night and then you wake back up and you're like, oh, it's eight or 10 hours later. And it's kind of dramatic when you wake back up, you're like, wake back up and you're like, what's happening? What's happening? And so they always try to like keep you calm because there's like noises around and you're like, am I okay? Am I okay? And then, you know, after a few minutes, the pain sets in and you're like, ooh, yeah. Painful. Yeah. So I'm gross. I'm, you know, you should. You should have surgery just to like, you know. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like get used to it. Not uh, that you're ever going to have to have it. My worry is that someday you're going to have to have some like dramatic surgery and you're not going to even know what to expect and you're going to freak out. Yeah, that's that's me, Mr. Freak Out. You know, I would probably be like, yeah, no thanks. Uh, yeah, oh, the other option. What's the other option, doctor? Death? Yeah, <laughs> I'll take my chances, I guess. <laughs> well, what has been happening with you this week while well, I've been sick? I think you've been pretty busy, right? Of course I've been busy, you know. I'm back to work the week. Back to work, the usual thing like that. But I've also been working with my clients on their podcast. I did a fantastic episode with them. It's always great when episodes run pretty smoothly and everybody comes in as able to dial up some of the audio. One of the people they had on the show did have some audio issues that I had really had to clean up. We're talking like a lot of microphone bumps, a lot of coughs, breaths, the usual scratchy sounds. Uh-huh. I had to go and clean up that stuff. But once it, it didn't take me very long to do it. Actually, I think I'm getting better doing it this way. And I, I'm thinking about this because I was listening to another show about podcast editing the way most people do their podcast editing is that somebody will record the file and email it to me and I would have to go and listen to it and fix it, mm-hmm. make it sound great. The way I do it is I physically sit here and record it for them. Okay. So I'm hearing everything live in real time and make sure you get the adjustments done live. So I can, I can have them get their audio tuned in right from the start. That way, when I go through to edit, I know exactly where I need to fix stuff and what needs to be fixed. Because I'm already listening to it as it comes through. So it's like, it's almost the same thing as if I was renting out like a recording studio mm-hmm. and I was sitting in the booth with all the knobs and buttons and the talent would be on the other side of the glass with the microphones and they would be talking and I would be recording. It's almost the same thing, but over the interwebs. So. Your clients must love that experience because, you know, being able to lean on you, having you there and present so that if something goes wrong, you can fix it on the fly. But then also... You know, the turnaround time for the editing must be a lot quicker oh, it, because it is, you're part of the recording. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that. Yeah, it must be. I know that, like, I was kind of thinking, like, if I got the recording files from somebody else who recorded it, by the way, you never know how they're recording right. it or what tool they're using or what kind of, you have no idea. So you get these files and it could just be a whisper sound of, of an audio mm-hmm. with, with noise, just like crazy trains running in the background or something. It could be, you know, who knows what. This way, I, I have full control, and I'm probably a little bit of a control freak, so it helps me be able to get the audios I need in the right file format so I can do my magic with them, and literally, I can turn these shows around in less than a couple hours. Yeah, I know that they had asked for you to release this one, like you recorded it on Friday, and they wanted it released for Super Bowl weekend. You really do have a quick turnaround, and so that's so exciting. I'm so happy that they're so pleased with your work because I just I love seeing you being able to chase after your dreams. Oh, you know, I just told this the other day to you. I said, you know what? If it wasn't for the fact that you are part of my life and we're together and that you are very supportive, if it wasn't the fact that you are here, I wouldn't be able to do any of this stuff. I would always be working, you know, overtime every week just to stay, you know, ahead of the game and just 
that would be my life. My new, my normal would be go to work, work as much as you can, ask for as much overtime you can, and just go home, sleep, uh, eat, and go back to work again. Yeah. And it would have been a different life for our kids as well. I feel like, you know, being able to be in this stage of life where we're married now and, you know, we're figuring out our co-parenting situation and those dynamics is definitely, it's added a lot of richness to our lives and to our kids' lives. It's not always easy, but, you know, I was thinking about this as well. Like Ezekiel just turned 18 and he's at this age where he's going to start, you know, choosing where he wants to spend more time and, um, you know, creating a a nice safe space for him to be able to feel at home in. I think it's really important to me. And I know it hasn't always been easy, but, you know, I've been doing a lot of reflecting lately on, you know, over the last seven and a half, almost eight years, how much my life has changed and what a different space that I'm in now than when I first got divorced. Yeah, me too. It's it, We've grown together and I think we've learned a lot. And you know, it's never been easy. None of this stuff is easy. We learn as we go and kind of try new things and figure figure things out. But I think in the the whole picture of it all is that love is is for everybody. We, we, we kind of I love everybody in the family, and you know, and, you know, including, including including Ezekiel. You know, of course, of course, especially Ezekiel. And so, you know, speaking on this topic of blending families together and figuring out how to navigate life after divorce, we have a great expert that's going to be on the show with us. That's going to be talking about this dynamic, but a little bit more from the the child perspective. And we're going to be back with her right after this. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcasting Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. And welcome back, everybody. Today, we have another fantastic VIP guest, a soon-to-be doctor. She is an author, a certified divorce coach, a wife, and mother. Welcome to the show, Leslie Holtoff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, hey, we- Leslie. Thanks. The crowd goes wild. Thanks <laughs> for showing up today. We appreciate yeah, it. I love it. It must be because they know the struggle of the doctoral student where they're like, you know, the fact that you have time in your schedule to actually be here with us is a miracle. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely been a learning experience. Yeah, it's quite the journey. Chris lived through it with me. We actually, we started dating the week I got accepted to my doctoral program. So Chris, what was the journey like from the spouse's perspective? Uh, And I said, great, I'm going to marry a doctor. This is fantastic. (laughs) I'm going to get on my license plate frame now. I'm married to a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my husband quite understood what he was getting into either. But Same. of course, I'm fan. I think he's just like, are we going to finish this? And I'm like, man, yeah, I'm, we are. I don't know when we are. I thought every, I'm constantly like, I'm almost finished. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm about four months out. And I've been saying that for at least 
<laughs> well, you know what? It is quite the lift. And I know balancing that with professional responsibilities and at-home responsibilities. If nobody said to you lately, you're a rock star, let us say that to you today for, for you. tackling this. Thank you. It's, it's exciting. It's one of those things I'm doing just because I knew it would be challenging. <laughs> so I'm excited by the challenge, but I'm also like, man, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's, uh, I've just been learning a lot. And at some points, it feels like it's easier to give up than it is to keep moving forward. But then do you have that little nagging thing like, I can't let myself down? Yes. And then I, I sometimes I'm like, wait, why was I doing this again? You know, and I have to kind of go back and be like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm close enough now that I feel like I can kind of taste it, you know, like right. it's, I've gotten through a lot of the harder stuff and it's just, I'm getting ready to be right in the thick of it. And I'm super excited about my topic and I, I love writing. So from that side of it, it has just been, it's been, Dara, I don't want to say fun because fun is maybe too far, but I've, I've really just enjoyed all of it. Nice. Well, that's awesome. And so I know we jumped right into talking about your your doctoral work, but where in the world are you joining us from today, Leslie? And I'm in Suffolk, Virginia, which is southeastern Virginia. I'm kind of close to the North Carolina border and near sort of Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. Okay. So what is Suffolk famous for? Peanuts. They're peanuts. Yeah. Now the, pe- the peanuts come in the, are they grow on the ground or are they in a tree? I don't know. I have no idea. Put me right on the spot, just like that. <laughs> well, if, you're the, if you're the peanut capital of the world, you probably know this. They grow from the well, ground. I, so I'm actually from Smithfield, Virginia, which is the ham capital of the world, roughly 10 miles from here, which is where I grew up. So we've just got lots of good country stuff going out here. Yeah. Not the country, huh? So if they're famous for ham, ham grows on trees, I think, and peanuts are in a vine. <laughs> no, it does not, honey. You know, it grows at the honey pick store. <laughs> I mean, my high school mascot was a pig. I mean, it's the whole thing. It's, we, there's a lot of bacon. You know, there's just, it's a lot of that. Do all the kids, when they leave high school, they, they go work at the pig farm or something? Is that yes. like a thing? In fact, we, we used to call, we used to call it Smithfield University because so many people just went to the plants and worked, worked there. It, it's less so now just because the company's gotten bigger and just it's, they're everywhere now. But when I was growing up, that was exactly what happened. That's crazy. But to just answer generation your- after generation going to work there, it was by my granddaddy, granddaddy, granddaddy worked at the old pig farm. <laughs> You're making fun, but that's a real conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the peanut conversation, Chris. Peanuts do not grow on trees. Get out of here. <laughs> they do not. I learned that back in college because I, well, I should have known that before. Hey, was, it, was, your, was it Peanuts 101? You took that course? No, ever- I went to the house of George Washington Carver and he was known for like all of these different inventions that he made based off of peanuts. And so they had like this whole story of how peanuts are grown and farmed and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. we've got the Mr. Peanuts, you know, and he has a little, that's, that's yeah. God. He's, he's like the, the King Daddy of peanuts, I heard. <laughs> he is. I mean, we've got like a, we've got statues of him. We have a big peanut mobile that drives around. I've seen it on, on, uh, on the, on the old interweb, a few pictures of that. <laughs> yeah. Like the Oscar Mayer one. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's my best showing of Suffolk, but it's all true. That's, <laughs> that's where we're at. We are like the biggest county land-wise in Virginia, so there's just a lot of country stuff, but we are turning into a more successful city. Nice. So is when you were saying a more successful city, because here we live in California and the cities tend to build up instead of spread out. So are in Suffolk or in Suffolk County, I'm assuming is where you live. Is it is are things spread out pretty significantly, or do you have a lot of high yes. rises? No. <laughs> okay. No, I love San Diego. We love lots of cities, and I'm gonna tell you, our cities are not like that. 
there are a couple of apartment buildings, but I mean, you're talking maybe 20 stories compared to quote unquote real cities. That's just not who we are. We have a downtown and then you have like a North Suffolk, which is more of, how do you even describe it? More of your shops and restaurants and that type of thing. Just not a ton of high rise, not that kind of city. There, There is that in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, but, but Suffolk. Mm-hmm. But Suffolk is really, really old. So our downtown is, for example, there's just tons of buildings from the 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of history here, which is, is very cool. And a lot of, you watch these really old buildings kind of reach almost the end of their life and then you know somebody will will buy them and and just totally redo them and it gets really exciting and and so we're in this real changing of kind of an old downtown becoming more of a new downtown you know it's interesting you say that because i've been looking at all of these different trends in like building and architecture and there's like two main schools of building right now it's like this very industrial look where things are like very modular and concrete based but then There's a lot of people that are trying to like rehab and bring buildings back to life and enhance like the the culture of the architecture and things like that. Do you see more of the latter versus the former? Yes. Here, here I do. And it's actually, I also do real estate. And so I have renovated some buildings from 1800. And from a passion standpoint, it's really cool, right? To just think about all the things that this building has seen in the last 100, 150 years. And it's really cool. But from an actual like investor and renovation standpoint, you just don't know what you're getting into. It's a, it's a, <laughs> a hundred to yeah. years of stuff. Right. And surprises and like, oh, well, we don't do it like that anymore. And, you know, so it's maybe not wise, but it is very cool, in my opinion. Like, I just love watching these old buildings get turned around and you can see the history. But also as it merges with like a new modern, I don't know, it's just really cool. I love I love buildings, especially old buildings and old houses and. I just think it's neat. Okay, True Confessions Real Estate Investor Edition. Have you ever been asked to rehab a property that was rumored to be haunted? Uh, Oh, yeah. Really? Better than that. I had a... So we live near Portsmouth, which is also a really, really old city. Yeah, like a port city. And I had this property and this tenant who was there. It was a really old house. It had been renovated to some degree, but I was going to renovate it more. But not only did she say it was haunted, but she had like normal surveillance video of like weird things happening. But really? You, you know, I, like it was really hard to, she, and she's calling us. And as a landlord, I'm like, what am I supposed to do about this? You know, <laughs> I'm like, what are you, you know, and so it basically she would send us videos and it would look like, you know, if your watch has got the sun coming in the window and there's mm-hmm. like the, you know, and it's like sort of bouncing around the room. She would send us like that and like things on her wall, like, shaking and you know to this day i don't know if she was crazy or if there really was some ghosts i I don't know i don't know but but that was one of our strangest landlord situations because she just kept calling us and i was just like i don't even know where to begin (laughs) with how to do this you know like like your ac goes out i got a guy i I didn't have a ghost guy (laughs) ghostbusters is actually like in the phone book Like, I mean, I was seriously like, okay, like, I guess we we need Ghostbusters. I mean, it was just, hey, yeah. And it was sort of something she just kept calling over and over. So that was, that was challenging. Oh, that's so crazy. Well, so mm-hmm. one of the things that Chris and I are always intrigued with is cost of living at other areas around the country. And so like we know San Diego is one of the most expensive places in the country to live. I think it just got picked the most expensive. Was it? 
Well, we were interested to know a little bit more about where you live and like, especially since you're in real estate, is it oh, a pretty yeah. a pretty moderately priced area or how it's would just, you rate it? So because Suffolk is sort of this like emerging, I don't know, maybe a suburb I would call it. Like, so Hampton Roads, which is like seven local cities, we make up a pretty big metropolis, but separate, all the cities are smaller. So Suffolk has sort of been where, like, you've got your Virginia Beach and you've got your Norfolk, and these places are, Virginia Beach is our biggest city, and then Norfolk is pretty big with it, and then Suffolk is, like, right there. So I can be in either one of those places. I can be in Norfolk in 15 minutes and Virginia Beach in 30. So a lot of people will live in Suffolk and commute and work there, obviously. So Suffolk is, you know, even in, quote, unquote, our cities, it, it's still so much cheaper. So let's say if you live in a house in which is easy to find a house that costs four or five hundred dollars four or five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> right <laughs> believe it or not yeah not quite that much but you know our prices have just we're sort of catching up with the rest of americans what i call it so we have recently seen a huge surge in prices but a, a house here that costs four or five hundred thousand dollars could easily cost a million dollars just 30 minutes down the road in virginia beach That's and crazy. it would be the exact same place that would probably cost you guys three million dollars yeah. i mean it's wild but you know you're you're in the country. I mean, you have to, you're driving 30 minutes to get to work and you're right. driving and we have tons of bridges and tunnels and traffic is not always that much fun. So you got to really decide what you want, but you absolutely can have a a mansion here out in the country that would be just out of most people's reach in any of the bigger cities. And is it a pretty nice place to raise a family? I think so. Like my favorite part about living here in Hampton Roads is we go to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. So that's about an hour, hour and a half south of us. You've got Virginia Beach here, which is like 35 minutes away. You've got the mountains. You've got Charlottesville skiing opportunities. We got lakes. (laughs) It's just a really cool place to live in the sense that pretty much anything you want to do activity wise is probably two or three hours away. DC is only three hours away. So you can kind of go there to the city. I mean, it's, it's a cool place from just having a lot of different things to experience. So I love living here. I grew up skiing. I grew up on boats. I grew up going water skiing, snow skiing, camping. I mean, you can just go hiking in the mountains. I don't do that, but you can. Just lots of cool stuff like that. That's amazing. And it seems like you have a family that lives there with you from reading a little bit about you. You have kiddos. I I do have kiddos, but they're like adultos. You know what I mean? (laughs) My oldest son lives in Virginia Beach, actually. And my youngest son lives in downtown Suffolk here. He's not far from me, but they are 20 and 20. Well, man, is this a quiz? 28? (laughs) Like. 29 and 21 they'll be this year, I think. It's hard to keep track when they're that old. Leslie, can you talk a little bit about your teen pregnancy? Like, how old were you when you had your first... It was your first child, right? I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. It was a total nightmare. I was 15 years old when I found out I was pregnant. And I was one of those... You know, I knew of people having sex in high school, obviously, but it wasn't my thing. This was just something that happened. And I was blown away. This is as much as a surprise to me as it was to anyone else. But with my, I really struggled with, my family was very, I expected them to sort of kick me out and make me live on the street. And they surprised me. And they were like, oh yeah, I, I expected this. Like I sat down with my parents and I was like, I guess I'm going to a shelter now. You know, like I was prepared for, prepared for that. But luckily my parents, once they got past the shock and all, they were like, you're our daughter and we love you and we'll figure this out. And it was a horrendous nine months, but we did make it through that. And they, have helped me 
immensely. But anyway, it, it was shock, but I did. I turned 16 in May and I had my oldest son on July 4th that year. So I was barely over 16. Wow. And then I subsequently got married really young to my high school sweetheart, not the one that I had a child with. I Only two people I dated in high school and these were the two. But anyway, I got married at 22 years old and I had my other son and then I was divorced around 25, 26. So I was 25, 26 years old, single mom, two kids, two different dads. It was a lot. It was a lot. I didn't know anybody who was divorced. I didn't know anybody who had kids out of wedlock. I didn't. I mean, it was, I was thrown into a world I shouldn't know anything about, which was terrifying. I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know how to relate as an individual to the people that I grew up with that I respected and, and wanted to be like. So it was a lot of life-changing events in like a 10-year period. And then I have, I think, managed to claw my way out of that and sort of taken my experiences and try to turn them into something positive, which is why I now do divorce and co-parenting coaching. So so floating back just a little bit, Leslie, you were talking about getting married at a reasonably young age, which I did also for my first marriage. So in my experience, I grew up in a community where that was kind of the the norm, not the exception, was you graduate high school, you get married pretty soon after. And I grew up in a farming community where, you know, you married farmers or somebody in the farming or ag industry or in something that contributed to it. And then you just like that was kind of your lot in life. It was the exception to move away and go to college. Was that a similar yeah. experience to yours where marrying young was. wasn't the exception? Correct. Yes. And it would, most of my friends went off to college, but even when they kind of came back, they still got young, fair, married fairly young. But it was almost like I went through two different friend groups, which is odd. But, you know, a lot of my friends got married. We were probably, I still got married first, but everybody else was 24, 25. And then I, after my divorce, my group changed and they all tended to get married in their 30s. So like, it's really funny. Now my friends are all in their 30s and they have kids little kids. Mm -hmm. My kids were in their 20s. But yes, that is exactly what happened. My parents got married when they were 19 years old. They were married for 45 years before my dad died about five years ago. All of my aunts and uncles got married young. That's just what you did. But the older I got, I was like, oh, that's too young. <laughs> right. But at the time, I didn't think that. You know what I mean? I thought that that was same thing. That's just what you did. And having already had a child, I felt like you know, I dealt with all this guilt and shame about having a child out of wedlock and getting married was sort of like, oh, that will take all that away. That's, right? that's, a, that's no, a magic, magic bullet to fix all that. <laughs> yes. And and I think I, you know, obviously in hindsight, it's easy to look back, but I think that I felt like that was my, it's all going to be okay if I could just get married. Yeah. And then, and then I also stupidly thought, you know, it would be great if my kids weren't that far apart in age. But they were oh, so they could play together. Ago. Is that what they'd be playmates? Yeah. <laughs> well, I had all these cousins. I mean, I have 11 to 14 cousins on either side of my family. Everybody lived pretty close. So I grew up with just all this family. And so that's what I wanted. And that is not what I got. And that's okay. <laughs> but they were eight years apart. And it, it's hard when your kids are that far apart because they're never the same age where they have fun doing the same things. Definitely. And uh, you know what I think is so interesting because, you know, having this shared experience of, growing up where it's kind of this unwritten, I wouldn't say rule, but kind of acceptable practice to get married young is at the high school level or when we're kind of getting ready to make that next step into adulthood. Nobody talked with me about what it's like to get married and how life changes and like 
mentally preparing yourself. And it seems like if, you know, 60 or 70 percent of the kids are going to get married in the next three to four years, like how do we actually mentally prepare ourselves for this? Because looking back, I was like, I was 22. I had graduated college. I thought like, you know, I have my first teaching job. I'm ready for this. And now looking back, my son just turned 18 and I'm like, holy heck, I hope he waits like 10 years. <laughs> same, same, right? Like I, like you, you didn't, I don't, or at least I didn't realize how young I was until I started knowing other people that were that old. And like now my son is 20 and I'm like, don't even think about it until you're 30. And, and he's not going to listen to me, but I'm like, please trust me on this. And so I've tried to tell him, I'm like, I, I truly believe that you go through this like last adulthood at like 25. Right. Like you're just not at 20 or 23 who you are at 25, 26. And so I've tried to convince them, especially as boys, because I've noticed that it's really the boys slash men that seem to go through this mature thing a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've begged them. But yeah, I, I didn't realize how young I was. And now I just want to like hug 22 year olds and be like, oh, no, this is have fun. Please have fun. Right. And nobody gave me any warning. And, and what you just said about nobody prepared me. And I, I talk about that a bit in my book is it's just like a couple of different things. Like I talk about the the sort of sex part of it. Like you don't have sex until you're married and, and we're taught as girls and women, or at least I was, you know, that it, I mean, it was a very religious thing. Like mm-hmm. this is against God. And clearly I had already broken one rule and I just didn't know what all this meant. And then we get married and it's like, now we're supposed to be this happy sexual being, even though you've spent the first 20, 25 years being told not to do it and that it's wrong. And it was really hard for me to make that adjustment as a wife. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had two little sisters. She was a great stay-at-home mom, but I didn't have that, you know? So I was entering into a marriage where I was working full-time and I already had one kid. And then we almost immediately had the second kid. And it was it was hard figuring out how to juggle that. I had never watched anybody do that successfully. Right. And even my mom, bless her heart, like she was trying to figure out how to best help me. And it was like we we really struggled with our relationship at first because neither one of us knew how to do it. You know, like mm-hmm. my mom would be like, oh, your 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 son is sick. Let me keep him so you can go to work. And I was like, no, like I have sick days. I can stay home with my child from time to time when they're sick. This makes me feel good as a mom. Right. This I'd want to do, you know? And then she'd say, oh, well, how can you take the kids to the grocery store? Isn't that just a handful? And I'm like, well, yeah, it is. Yeah, Christine pointed at me laughing because I because I take the kids to the store. I'm almost like, drop what I'm doing. Leave the cart where it's at. And we're going home. <laughs> Forget this. Oh, my God. I just remember trying to hold the cart with like one elbow and keep my kid in it with the second elbow and then try to get stuff off the shelves. And I'm like, oh, that's stuff What are your really... thoughts, Leslie, on the, on the parents who just put their... Your kids in the cart, <laughs> like you know, I'm talking about, like hey, in the basket. Whatever works. I always say I I don't judge anybody for anything, and, and parenting styles is definitely one of them because I feel yeah. like you always think you know what kind of parent you're going to be, and like you do not know what kind of parent you're going to be, and it depends on the kid, right? Like my two kids, and from what most parents I know with two kids, they're totally different kids, right? And what worked for the first one didn't work at all for the second one. And it is just a crapshoot, isn't it? Trying to figure out how to make it all happen and how to do it successfully. And even when you do figure out what works successfully, it often changes. Yeah. Six months later, it's a totally different thing. It really does. And, you know, you going back to one of the things that you said about when when you're raised in a super religious household or you've grown up around religion, that shift in being a single person that's abstaining to now being in a marital relationship and having to having this automatic 
switch is like, it wasn't okay 10 minutes ago, but because I kissed you in front of all of these people and sent a paper, now I'm supposed to not have any mental blocks about being Mm -hmm. intimate, nor do I even know what I'm doing. And now we're supposed to be a functional, happy, healthy couple. There's so many things that go into that that I think can set up so many of our young couples for just so many emotional challenges when they're newlyweds. Oh my gosh. And then compound that with the fact that, you know, in high school, nobody did a good job of teaching me what it meant to take out a mortgage and how the math worked on that or the credit cards or managing your bank accounts. Like all of these very normal things that everybody has to do. I feel like if I did learn it in school, it was like one Tuesday, it was over and I did not understand how badly I needed to be paying attention. Right. And so, you know, we were two young kids trying to figure out how to to make our money work and pay all of these bills and take care of these kids. And then being a wife, like it meant something different to me than it had my mom. And, you know, like I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to be a good me, much less a good wife. And right. so I ended up, I always say that I lost myself in my first marriage. And by the time I left, I left because I no longer recognized the person looking at me in the mirror. And I didn't know how to get her back, but I knew I wasn't ready to let go of her either. And I didn't feel like I had a choice. And so I felt like my first marriage, my aha starter marriage, taught me so much because I went into every relationship after that knowing what my boundaries were and what to find in a husband because I married the guy that I partied with. We had fun together. That's great, obviously. But like what you, what I needed in a spouse was like the person who was going to be there for me when the times got hard. And my first husband wasn't great at that. Oh no. And you know, we were less good together as a team, just the two of us as we were at a party, you know, like, and it just, Mm -hmm. I remember I got to the we walked, you know, we cry, I do, I do. And you get to the back of the church. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, it was that quick for me. Yeah. That I was like, oh, now what do we do? When the party is over, the actual party part, like, are you going to help me take care of these kids? Are you going to help me pay these bills? Are you going to help me figure out how to deal with sick parents? I mean, you know, just life. And we did not do well at all the real stuff together, but we did have fun at parties, you know, but, yeah. you have to, but nobody sat me down and said, that is just the tip of the iceberg. The other stuff is so important too. And why do you think it is that in our society, we've come to a point of where we, I mean, we know so much about how many divorce divorces there are, but we haven't as a society changed to say, okay, let's look at the like before you even get married, let's see if we can solve some of these problems for our people. Like, why right. aren't we getting wise and trying to equip our young people better for marriage? I don't know, but we should be. And I'll say this, like through the first time I got married, my preacher or whatever he was, we did have some counseling with him. And then same when I, I'm married again now. So the second time I got married, we did that. But both of two totally different types of Count marriage counseling or or whatever you want to call it, but neither was helpful. So the the first time they were like, "Oh, you're both." I mean, again, we're twenty one, twenty two, and and we fill out this form and they ask us lots of questions. And in in so many words, the preacher guy is like, "Oh, neither one of you are actually really good at money. What are you guys going to do about that?" And I'm like, "I don't even know what that means." Yeah, <laughs> wow. I don't even know how. 
How are you good at money when you're married? We've never done this yet. How do we know that we're not going to be good at it? And really what he was trying to say is when we fill all these forms, we both thought we were going to be the ones in charge of the money. But we didn't understand the importance of talking about that. And Mm -hmm. I don't think he did a good job of explaining to us why we needed to have that conversation and how sharing finances was going to look in our marriage. It was just sort of like, hey, this is a red flag. What are you going to do? And of course, I'm 22. I think I'm in love. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. I love you love you like, so much. Everything is like the first tale. Find a way. It's yeah. really beautiful. And I mean, like, I could go back and shake the crap out of 22-year-old me. <laughs> Leslie, did, did you find watching some a lot of those rom-com movies kind of get to you or all the Hallmark movies that Christine loves so much? Oh, my much? gosh. She's putting me on blast. I wish I was smart enough to say to say yes, but no, because I'm still like a hopeless romantic. Thank like, you. I still watch these movies and I'm like, yeah, man, why aren't you doing that? <laughs> but at the very, the very end of them. gesture that means you really love me. Um, and my husband's just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, I, I love okay all, too, but. Well, I love all the fairy tale endings of all of them, happy <laughs> ever after, you know. As he's like, oh my gosh, every time we watch him. But, you know, you said one thing, you were talking about the premarital class at the church. And I just have to tell this story. I've told this to Chris before. So I was got married my first marriage to my college sweetheart. We met the first week of my freshman year in college. He was my first boyfriend, raised ultra conservative. And this is no dig on anybody else. I mean, I was into it. That was my life was church and church leadership and all of that. And so we did the whole several month long class. We First of all, we started the premarital counseling class and they sit us all down as couples in a room. And they're like, just letting you know that some of you won't make it through And we were like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Won't make it through. Like, is there a test? And they're like, no, through the process, some of you may realize that maybe you're not ready for this step. And I was, you know, the competitive one in me is like, we're going to ace this. We're going to, we're committed. And then, you know, they go through the, you know, do your little inventory of your love languages and of your spending habits. And then came the intimacy talk where they separated the men from the women And they put us girls in a room and one of the elder ladies of the church who was, I believe, around 75, sat us down and talked with us about our responsibilities as wives to our husband's needs and just kind of laid it out as basically whatever he wants, you need to give it to him or else he's going to look elsewhere. And like from a 22-year-old's mind, the damage that that does, like... I don't get to have boundaries. This thing that I've never even done before, now it's an expectation of service. And the, you know, just the whole, well, don't resort to, you know, videos and other devices. You need to be the source of pleasure for your your spouse. And it was like, I had no idea what I was even walking into. And I mean, there's just, there's so many things that we don't learn about and we don't know how to even respond to when we are that young. And this isn't saying that, you know, getting married young is a horrible thing. It's just, there's so much development that needs to happen and self, self-searching before marriage. Well, yeah. And you know, they didn't take the boys in the room and say those same words to them, right? Oh, no. <laughs> no, of course not. So you're, you know, it's like the, whether your sexual relationship is going to be healthy or not is based on, it's me, right? It was my job. They never said to him, you know, oh, her emotions are important. And, you know, she might want to sometimes and not want to. And he he went into it with like this, exactly what you just said. 
we believed everything we were told. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of like, oh, this is my, my job, you know, and making it a job, really not the best way to start off. you know. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was awful. And I didn't know who to talk to about that. I didn't have the kind of relationship with my, or with any adult where it was like, oh, let's just, let's talk about sex. How's sex in your marriage? This isn't going well. What should I do? Like, I didn't have that. Right. Of course, we didn't have the internet. This was, you know, a long time ago. So I just felt so lost and conflicted. And it's nice now to realize I wasn't alone in that because I felt very alone in that back then. And you talked a little bit about that feeling of alone once you left your first marriage and now found yourself single parenting of two children from two previously fractured relationships. And so, you know, switching gears from now being that married wife to now being a young divorcee, having to navigate the world of joint custody or custody in general, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, it it goes back. My teachers were my parents. They were married for 45 years. I I had some friends in high school who spent the weekends with their dads. But other than that, I didn't under... I. I didn't understand the gravity of divorce, not from a parent aspect. I didn't understand if or how it was hurting my kids. I mean, obviously I knew it was going to hurt my kids, but I didn't, because I didn't grow up in divorce, I didn't understand the impacts that it would make, which is exactly actually why I'm now writing my dissertation on joint shared custody, because I I still don't know all those answers. And it's really difficult. And I didn't know how to to do it. But I had these two dads who also didn't know how to do it. One of them was from a divorced family, but it wasn't a healthy divorce. Mm-hmm. So we were all trying to figure it out. There was no such thing back then, to my knowledge, of, you know, co-parenting coaches or divorce coaches. Right. I had no I had no idea where to turn to. And, you know, I did have one friend. It was a guy. And he said to me, and it was the best advice I got. I mean, I'm 16 years old and I lost all these friends and I'm going through this teenage pregnancy. And I mean, and I'm starting to understand that I'm going to have to teach this human how to be a human whilst still being a child myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to really look at the magnitude of this. And he, what he said to me is he was like, I don't care how hard this gets for you. Never, ever, ever say a bad word about his dad to him. Mm. period. He was like, I, my parents, you know, when they got divorced, they slung mud at each other. And he was like, it's absolutely the worst thing that you can do. And it had never crossed my mind. Right. Why would it? And I took what he said to heart and I made that my number one rule um, because it was the only thing that I knew for a fact would affect my kids because I heard it from somebody who was a kid and dealt with it. And I took it to heart and it is still the number one advice that I give people like never, ever, ever, ever do that. It's hard. Yeah, I was just going to say, so that's something that Chris and I talk about, but how did you do that, especially when you needed to vent? Of course, you know, you don't want to do it around your kids, but you still have to be able to get that out at some point. So what was your channel for being able to process through all of your frustration? I was really lucky. I just have a really great group of core friends who've been there with me from the beginning and can listen to me. but. One of the things I went to my mom and I expected her to be completely unhelpful, right? Because I'm like, you and your 40-year marriage, what do you know about me? And she basically says to me, she goes, do you really think, and I went to her, I forget what we were fighting about, but me and one of their dads were fighting about something having to do directly with, you know, one of my sons. And I was just so upset. And I was just, she says to me, she's like, Leslie, she's like, you think that married people don't fight about kids? (laughs) 
She's like, that's all we fight about. You know, like that's mainly what we fight about. And it, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is true. And and I try to remind people that I'm like, everybody's co-parenting. Even if you're happily married to your kid's, you know, other parent, you're still always co-parenting. And not talking bad about your spouse in front of your kids is still Yeah, that would important. be a good thing, you know? I would think. Yeah. I mean, it's you and I never so my parents did this thing where they thought fighting in front of the kids was bad, which is sort of sounds great. It's like, oh, my parents never fought. No, they didn't. That means I didn't learn how to fight. I didn't learn how to have healthy conversations about improving our relationship. Yeah. And so including how to handle difficult conversations about what's best for your kids. So it was just something else that I had to learn on my own. But thank God I was obsessed with psychology and reading. And I was able to say, okay, look, I have wonderful parents. I have a, a ridiculously charmed life, but I'm not able to raise my kids in that situation. And I have to figure out a way to do this that works for us. And it was a lot of try and be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a lot of, and, and I'd like to think that because of that, I can speak now to a lot of people and say, look, I did a lot of this the wrong way. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to figure it out, but there are definitely things that I took from it that I think were were right. You know, you brought up a really interesting point that I was just simmering on when you were talking about the not fighting in front of the kids and the models that we have. And, you know, it's interesting. Chris and I had a little friction this morning and we were sitting, we, we sit and have coffee together every morning. And it was over just, you know, just regular relationship topics, communication and stuff like that. And, miscommuni and communication wasn't going well this morning. So it was like trying to resolve it, you know, and then one of the kiddos, our 10-year-old, came downstairs. It's Chris's biological son, my bonus boy. And he's kind of like tiptoeing down. And we weren't yelling, but it was like, you know, you can tell that there's some tenseness and we're trying to work through stuff. And he kind of like tiptoed. And part of me was like, oh, well, we should stop talking. And I'm like, actually, I was thinking in my head, our kids need to see us working through disagreements without, you know, screaming and yes. throwing things at each other. Yes. It's yes, hard. Yes, yes. And that's so hard to do because I was, you know, I was brought up. You don't fight in front of kids. You don't have these conversations in front of kids. But I think it's a bit of a disservice. Obviously, if you're fighting and the way that you fight is screaming and yelling and throwing things, you know, that's not great to do in front of the right. kids. But having discussions and disagreements about anything is great to have in front of your kids because they get to see how you compromise, right? They get to see how you listen and then respond and hopefully aren't interrupting each other nonstop. And, and that's how they're going to communicate. And if you don't give them that basis, they've just got to start from scratch. And it's just going to take them even longer to have healthier relationships when they get older. Absolutely. So I'm really intrigued about your research around this, around joint shared custody, because I've never really heard of anybody researching it or digging into it. It's just like, I feel like from my experience, it's like, we just have to do it. And then Chris, you have to share custody with your boy's mom. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's fine. A lot of times it's not because in one household, the rules are here, this, and your household, the rules are that. And I can do that over here. You can't do that over here. And my mom says this, and my mom says I can do this and all that stuff. And how do you, how do you help people deal with that kind of stuff? When you're only on one side of it, right? Because it's well, like- obviously you're on your side. Right. You, know? you can't control what happens there and how kids are being raised over there and whether- you know, like in my situation, I co-parent reasonably well in terms of being on the same page regarding discipline, but not lifestyle choices. Like oh, one house, you yeah. can 
I'm not going to say because one of our children does lis- listen to this, but you know, rules the, are the different. The question, yeah. Well, well, let's just say rules are different. And I'm not speaking ill because, again, our children listen to this. But how, what's the research? How do we approach it? And what are you hoping to accomplish? So I, I started off. The, so, OK, let me let me back up. So my oldest son, when I was 16, his dad and I had a very turbulent relationship. We didn't have any relationship at all by the time he was born. And it was like the bad kind. It was like going to court, fighting for custody. I didn't want him to be alone with my son. We we were going, we, I mean, he was a kid too, you know? We're friends now just to get to the end of that story. But at the beginning, it was really bad. The first 10 years was awful. And then with my second son, by the time I got divorced, I, I left when he was two. So now I had two kids with two different dads and I had what had been a really turbulent relationship with my first son. But Things really, it was about 10 years. It was like me getting divorced made my relationship with my first son's dad 10 times easier. Mm. But nonetheless, I was trying to figure out the best way to do this. And up until that point, it had been every other weekend and then randomly like a week in summer. And then, you know, as he got older and then when I got divorced, we were like, we went straight to 50-50. But we did two days on, two days off every other weekend. It was very complicated. We tried a couple of different scenarios before we said, let's do every other week. And then even every other week, took a couple of different trial runs of what day is best. Like, how do we do this? And we tried everything. For us, it worked on Mondays. They got on the bus at, let's call it my house, got off the bus Monday afternoon at their dad's, and they did it week on, week off. That was easiest for us as parents. I didn't have any knowledge of anyone doing 50-50. So I had no idea if I was doing a good thing or a bad thing for my kids. One thing that has been great about having adult kids is that I can sit down with them now and ask them these questions. Mm. And directly to your point, my my youngest my youngest son, his dad and I lived in the same neighborhood, so it was easy for him to get on and off the bus back and forth. But he used to want to stay at his dad's house, and that, that was really hurtful. You know, he would mm-hmm. prefer to be there, even though I logically knew that he preferred to stay there because he had less rules, right? That, like he could get oh, on his bike. Makes sense, had, yeah more friends who lived nearby, he had more fun at his dad's house, you know? So like when he was, I don't know, we'll call it eight, 10, 12, whatever, you know, my house was more, get your homework done. You have to get in the bath, clean your room. We have to do this for school. You know, it was a lot more of the responsibility side of it. And recently he and I were talking about this and he's a very emotionally intelligent child. Like he's very good at at expressing how he feels. And he was actually telling another kid while I was sitting there, that exact story about how when he was younger, he preferred going to his dad's house. And he was smart enough to realize that it was, you know, because of the different rules or whatever. And now at this particular period in his life, he and I are closer. And to him, it was it was cool to hear him say, because you have to get that even when you're doing it the best way possible, the relationship with both of their parents is going to ebb and flow, right? It is supposed to be Sometimes you're closer to your dad and sometimes you're closer to your mom. That's great that they've got two parents that they're going to, at different points in their life, feel closer to temporarily. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My son and I, you know, we've we've grown into this relationship, but yeah, he did have more fun. And also his dad, I mean, let's he was a single dad, right? So they were going to the skateboard park and I I can't do that with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, but I'd break every bone in my body and it's just not what I did with him, right? So he connected more at that age with his dad. Well, now he doesn't do that with his dad anymore. You know, mm-hmm. his dad remarried. His dad has little kids. So he's 
kind of caught up doing a lot more of that. Well, I didn't have any more kids. So he's over at my house bringing his friends and we're doing dinner and it's a different kind of thing. And I'm completely prepared for the fact that maybe when he gets married, maybe when he has kids, it could revert, revert back again. You know, right. It's supposed to do that. Like, I have to remember that even my own parents, there were times when I didn't want to talk to my dad for like two years. And then there were times when my mom drove me crazy, you know, and then as you become an adult and you have different needs, it just, it changes. So that is something I wish I had known, been able to put more thought process into when, when I was hurting because he wanted to be more at his dad's back then. And then the second part of that is I sort of came up with that, whichever one of us is more conservative is probably the way to go. My example of that is my son wanted to play video games. I didn't want him to play the video games. And my ex said he wanted him to play one of the ones that was like hardcore. You know, it's like rated what what M for mature, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. One of the bad ones. And he was, you know, eight or nine years old. And I had to put my foot down. You know, I, I let a lot of arguments go. And I finally said, this is important to me. You know, like maybe he would be okay if we let him play this video game at eight years old. But he might not be. And mm-hmm. so I'm just going to say we should err on the side of being conservative. And and I was like, and I'm this, I'm putting my heels down, right? Like, if you want to go back to court in front of a judge to fight for your eight-year-old son to be able to play adult video games, I'm in. You know, mm-hmm. like, that's what you're going to have to do because I'm not okay with this and, and I'm sticking to it. But there was a million other things that drove me crazy that he did over there that I did not bring up or fight about because you got to pick your battles. Yeah, and, and honestly, I like to think that the kids are more ra- better rounded people by having seen two different ways of being and growing up. And it will be interesting to watch how mine relate that to their own kids one day. You know, it's interesting that you bring all of these discussions up because they're things that Chris and I encounter because so we we've been married now for just over two years and we both have we came together with children from previous relationships I had my son pretty young and Chris waited a bit and had a kids. smart thing to do, as you say. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. Right. And had kids a little bit later. And so but I married young. Like she was young. So maybe that was I married mis- young. You married old. I'm, no, I was old. I married someone young. <laughs> yeah, so I think yeah. that's what my mistake yeah. was. But no, no mistakes. But the difference is like, you know, having co-parenting shared custody of one child versus co-parenting shared custody of two children. And then like in my dynamic, my son does like to stay with his dad more. We let him and he lives about 350 miles away. So we let him live up there during the week. He comes down here when he wants to used to be every other weekend. But, you know, as he's getting older, being flexible with that, whereas we have the shared custody of the 50-50 on the other side and the kids are moving back and forth. And so in your research, do you dig into the different shared custody models and pros and cons, or, or what is it that you're trying to get out of it? So I really wanted to focus on the 50-50 because to me, that's just what I ended up doing. And so I, you know, again, I didn't know anybody doing it and I just really wanted to look into it. So I have not completed my own personal research yet, but a couple of things that I've found in doing my research to bring to my dissertation is I have found some feedback on how healthy the 50-50 is in the sense that the the children apparently have a much better bond with like their grandparents because they're with their parents, I think, for a whole week. So they tend to, you don't feel so bad when you're like, we're going to go out on Saturday night. I want you to stay with your grandparents. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when you only have the kids every other weekend, 
you're not going to give up that Saturday night to get a babysitter so frequently because you you value your time with them because you're only there for that, if that makes sense. Right. So I thought that it was really cool to read that. I, again, don't know if I'll find that further in my research, but that was really interesting. And then other than that, you know, again, there's so many different ways of doing 50-50. There's, you know, there's very little research on it. Let's start there. That's the second reason I decided to focus on that is there's there's nothing. And what they have looked at is, okay, you're a parent, you're doing 50-50, and they ask the parent questions. Or I found a couple where they did some interviews with the kids, right? Oh, you're mm-hmm. six, you're nine. What do you think about going back and forth? But nobody had ever asked, like, so nobody had ever asked these kids once they grew up. So like my kid is 20. He will not be obviously part of my research, but I want kids like him who spent the majority of what I'm looking at is more than five years in a true 50-50. And I want their perspective now. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't do anything to me to know what how you felt about it at eight. Like I just really don't feel like you have have enough comprehension of why you're in that situation and what the alternative is to really give me the kind of feedback I want. But now that you're an adult, I want to know looking back, how was it? You know what I mean? Like, is this sustainable? Is it good advice to give people to do Mm 50-50? Because truly I had no idea. And are you looking at the different 50-50 models, like the on a week, off a week versus the splitting the week in half? Not specifically. Okay. The research does some kind of, you know, does split like that. Me personally, what I've found is the biggest difference is it depends on how easy it is for you to get along. Like if you get along great, two days on, two days off, awesome. If you don't get along, having to see your ex every other day, it'll it'll kill you. We couldn't do that. We were... We did not get divorced under good terms. He hated my guts, rightfully so. And so like I would realize originally you were like, we'll switch on Sundays. My anxiety, the second my eyes opened on Sundays was out of control and I couldn't handle it. And finally, the Monday solution worked for us because, you know, the least we saw each other, the better. (laughs) So this way it was on the bus, off the bus. You're not coming to my house. I'm not meeting you halfway. Like it was golden. But it took us a long time to figure that out. And my oldest son's father lived in Virginia Beach. So for us, it was on a weekend. The traffic was crazy. I had to commit an hour, hour and a half to driving back and forth. And, and you know, so that's the other thing is that 50-50 only works if it's geographically makes sense. It also right, yeah. works if the two of you are able to communicate and be co-parents. Because if you're in each other's lives that much, you have to talk all the time. Leslie, what do you think is the ideal? Like, what do you, what do you usually see the 50-50 usually happen like what 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 they usually do for their custody is it a week on week off is it a month on month off is it uh, what is the most common unofficial answer to that meaning i can't prove this but i it feels like people always start at the the couple days on couple days off because they think they won't be able to handle not seeing their kids for a week yeah it makes sense most of them end up doing week on week off and, you know, that's so interesting that you bring that up because from the step-parent perspective, Chris and I were having this conversation. And so in our dynamic with Chris's boys, they come to us every Saturday morning and we have them until Tuesday. And so the implications of that is because my Chris works, to, he works nights, Tuesday nights through Friday nights. We never, and I mean never, have a weekend to ourselves. We don't get dates. And so that puts a lot of pressure on us. And now that the kids are 13 and almost 11 and can stay independently for a couple of hours by themselves, I've been wanting to bring up the conversation, but as a step parent, don't know if I have the right to, to say, okay, 
can we discuss this custody arrangement to see how it can work better for all of us? Because like, from my perspective, I mean, we literally had this conversation this morning as part of our friction was I work all week long and then come home to, you know, preteen emotional hormonal lashing out at me kids. And from a step parent perspective, it's like, there's no break. That's hard. Yeah. Yes. And I was as a single parent, I needed, I wanted my Leslie time. You know, okay. It was important to me. I wanted those weekends. I had wine fests I was trying to go to, and I traveled when the weekends with my friends. And selfishly, I mean, I was 25 years old. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I had had a kid at 16. I didn't get to do all the fun stuff. And trust me, I tried to make up for it during the time of being a single mom afterwards. And I don't, I personally, I'm not sure how I would have made it through without that time for me because. I, again, I lost me and I had to refind me. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, when you remarry, I was single for, I don't know, seven or eight years or something like that. And when I had to go through all the stuff. My husband now does not have kids. So taking somebody who never had kids and being like, oh, by the way, now we got these two kids and two different, <laughs> completely different co-parenting styles and arrangements. And, and it was, it's hard. It's, it's hard even when everything works beautifully, you know? So. To me, one thing that got me through all those parts is just that it's temporary. You know, like all the parts about kids for me, I hated the car seat part. I hated the diaper part. <laughs> I honestly hated the like, they're all playing sports five days, like all the time, no time to yourself. It's, it's just hard. And then one day, I, I swear it was just over so fast. And then that part of parenting changed into something else that was hard in a different way. But one thing lightened up and something else changed. And and then one day it was like, oh, so they're out of high school now. That was fast. It did not feel fast. Yeah, that's that right, Christine. Yeah. I mean, we're I, I am on the tail end of that right now. I'm like, my son just turned 18 two weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, we're not going to have to co-parent in that way. Things are going to change and that's kind of exciting, but also nerve wracking because once he's an adult, now he gets to choose completely where he wants to spend his time. And then it's that insecurity of, but is he still going to want to spend time with me? Even though I know we have a great relationship, but he's at that age now. My son is 18 where we're having those conversations and I'm like, you know, what are you thinking after graduation? How often would you like to come down? Do you want to keep things the same? And him now being that quasi adult, being emotionally mature enough for us to have conversations around like, hey, bud, I'm a little nervous that maybe you're not going to want to come see me as much anymore. Can we talk about that? And him being actually mature enough to engage in the conversation is something that's like huge learning for me. That's it's a hard period. So my son, again, he'll be he'll be 21 in September, but he graduated just last year, June of, I guess, 20. Well, I don't even remember, but he's been moved out for a year. And going from when he could A, drive, right? That was a big step when he could start taking himself to sporting practice and he could drive himself to his dad's and back. That was huge. And then graduating from high school and turning 18 was like this whole other thing, like you just said. And now this last year, he's on his own and we had to have the same conversations about Christmas, you know? And it was like, we did every other year, Christmas morning. And I'm like, but you're, you're an adult now. You can kind of do whatever you want. and. I'll be honest, I don't think we've fallen into like a really great routine yet with it. It's still figuring things out. 
And as my boys, I tell you, they don't feel much more mature at 20 than they did at 12. So sometimes <laughs> I'm just not sure. <laughs> but I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, it just it, it keeps changing. I keep telling myself, he's 20, you know, like he's going to be a totally different person in two years. And he's trying to figure this out, you know, like, right. my, you know, his dad, he lives a little bit closer to me than he does his dad. And that plays into it. And again, I don't have any other kids. So they come over, you know, he comes over here, he brings his friends. I'm like, let's get Chick-fil-A. We're going to do dinner. And it's, it's easy. You know, it's harder for his dad to do that because he has smaller kids and they already have a dinner routine. And, you know, so it's, we're all still figuring it out. And, and I feel like, again, every time we figure it out, it changes. Do you think, Leslie, that when he goes to his dad's house with the little kids there, that he's kind of like the afterthought, not the main focus? I think that he feels that way. Mm. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. And I, you know, for him, it's, well, he remembers mostly having his dad to himself. I mean, he was, I want to say 14 when his dad had kids, maybe 13, 14. And so he went from being the only child and the only, well, of course, also in there, my ex got remarried. So now there's another mom figure. And then they had two more boys. And he is great with the boys. He's great with kids in general. In fact, they all just went on this like skiing vacation together. And it was really cool watching all of his TikToks, you know, like skiing with his little brothers. And it was very cool. But I know that they are currently trying to work on what their relationship means with him being an adult and there still being these other kids. And how to be a, an uncle, you know, or how to be a, a big brother. But he feels more like an uncle sometimes because mm-hmm. he's so much older than them. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard. And I know we, we both struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still struggle with how to, you know, how he's fun and I enjoy spending time with him, but he's still 20. And sometimes I feel mom-like and sometimes I feel friend-like. And he's just not adult enough yet for us to be on that friendlier level. You know, so yeah. we go back and forth and it's great when everything's great. And then when he does things that are stupid, it's harder. <laughs> yeah. And a 20 year old boy does a lot of things that are really stupid. <laughs> you know, and I it's funny because obviously I, I talk a lot about comparing. That's what I do. And it felt like when we got past high school, I wasn't going to have to deal with the back and forth with his dad. And I swear I've talked more to his dad in the past three months. <laughs> I mean, it is just like, I'm like, hey, did you talk to him? This is what he's doing, you know? And it's, yeah. you know, he got a speeding ticket and, you know. He what? <laughs> oh, get me. Oh, my God. Oh, did he get a speeding ticket? He got the speeding ticket of all speeding tickets. Was it, was it triple digit? So, no. Okay. But let's just say it was very close <laughs> and the speed limit was very low. Oh. Oh, that hurts. What kind of car did you get him to drive, <laughs> no. speaking of which? All right. First of all, my son graduated from high school and he got a good job. He was trained to be a welder. So he was making really good money for a young kid. And he bought a Subaru WRX. Do not recommend. They're all wheel drive. They're fun. <laughs> he got the manual. Of it's course. very fast. There you I know what you're talking about. Chris is a Stick car shift. guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, his dad did say, he kind of warned me. And I was like, yeah, whatever. He'll be fine. Our child is so smart. But turns out he's just like every other 20 year old. It's like yeah. the insurance companies know what they're doing with that high premium. You know, they're like, <laughs> oh, you yeah. be like, how dare you prejudge my son? They were so <laughs> right. right. How many, co- so how many right. Costco parking lots does he have donuts in? That's what I know. <laughs> oh, I don't even. Oh, that's bad. And let me tell you, 
I really wish I couldn't see his TikTok. You know what I mean? Like yep. sometimes social media makes it where I'm just like, oh, yeah, I don't want to watch this. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and that's a whole other thing. It's so hard to know. You know, you like being like, oh, that's his name's Hatteras. I'm like, oh, cool. That's what Hatteras is doing today. And then and then I'm like, oh, oh that's what, what Hatteras is doing today. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> So, Leslie, with all that we've chatted about today, and thank you again so much for sharing all of your experiences, we know that you are a certified divorce coach. And so would love to tell to hear from you a little bit about what you do and how this might be helpful for our listeners if any of these stories have hit home with them. Please. So I am a divorce and co-parenting coach. So I work with two kinds of people, people who are either usually they're already separated, but not quite divorced. And I actually help them through the process. And that can mean everything from helping you get your papers together to take to your lawyer, which will save you a lot of time, helping you prep for mediation so that you can be more successful in that. So all of those pieces. And then also on the co-parenting side, I talk to a lot of people, maybe they've been divorced for two years, let's say, and their kids are growing up and they're teenagers now. And a lot of times I work with dads, for example, who maybe are having a hard time connecting with their teenage daughters and really trying to figure out better ways to communicate or better ways to connect. And so I work with these two different, sometimes it's the same person, right? Divorce all the way through a little bit of time with the co-parenting. And sometimes it's just one or the other. But I take in, I like to take where I was lost in divorce and I've tried to help my clients just be better prepared. And I always say that, you know, you've got this whole team. You probably hopefully have a therapist. You've got a financial person. You've got a lawyer. And what your coach does is they really help you focus and bring your best foot forward when you're talking to your other members of the team, but also they help you take emotion out of it. So like if you're getting ready to text your ex and you've got a lot of that's you and things like that, like talk to me first and we're going to rearrange things and we're going to really help you not say something you're going to regret because I know you're angry, but that's not helpful. And, you know, so we really focus on emails and text messages and communicating clearly to our lawyers very important to know what you want at the end goal. And so we really try to have conversations about what you hope to get from the divorce, both, again, emotionally, financially. And so we really work through all those things. And I try to just do what I can. You know, divorce is so hard. It's so hard, Mm -hmm. even if you're the one that wants it, even if things go great, even if you think you're going to be great with parents, it's full of surprises. And I just really try to help make it a little bit easier. And I'm on, I, I always say, I'm like, I'm on your team. I don't right. know your spouse. I don't know your kids. You are my priority. And it's really hard when you're going through divorce to have that with your friends and family because they're biased. They know everybody involved. Absolutely. You know, I try to say, I'm your number one best friend. I'm in your quarter and I help people get through it. And so Leslie, where can our listeners find out more about you and your services? Thank you. Leslie Hope Coaching is the name of my company. That's my website. LeslieHopeCoaching.com. And you can find information on there and you can call, you can email, you know, everybody likes to start conversations a different way. And and that's okay. You can reach out to me at, in a lot of different ways. And I'm of course on Facebook and Instagram and all those links are on my website. Awesome. Fantastic. And so what are your last words of wisdom for our listeners as it comes to divorce, just learning who you are after divorce, co-parenting, the whole shebang? I would say two things. One, communicate well. And two, it does get better. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been very insightful. I know that I've learned a lot. I know our listeners will too. And we wish you all the best of luck as you get ready to wrap up your dissertation. Thank you so much. I need it. (laughs) 
this has been so great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leslie. Are you in the middle of wedding planning and feeling overwhelmed? There's no need to fret, my friend. Christine Smith Designs is here to rescue you. Offering wedding planning, coordination, and wedding floral design services, let us help relieve your stress and make your wedding day dreams a reality. Visit us at christinesmithdesigns.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E smithdesigns.com and request a free consultation. You'll be so glad you did. You know, it was so great having Leslie on the show today. It was so fantastic hearing her story. Absolutely. And I loved hearing about her research. And I think that that's such a unique perspective on focusing on the adult child's reflections and experiences from a shared custody situation. Because I don't think there's a lot of research out there around like what structures within that 50-50 environment work best and, you know, what trauma kids carry in i'd be really interested to read her research afterwards oh exactly fantastic we can't wait to call you dr leslie coming up soon we're sending you all the good vibes we know firsthand how navigating that dissertation process can be so uh, one doctor to one doctor to the other (laughs) one doctor to another uh but not switching gears but switching gears okay so we right before uh, Leslie came on with us. We were talking about the Super Bowl, and I just got this notification on my phone. Oh yeah, the uh, while Rih- we Rihanna were here. texted you, huh? Uh, yes, exactly. No, but we you remember we were talking about that she didn't actually get paid to perform, but that there's some benefit of the exposure, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's this image that just came across on social media, and it's the picture of Rihanna holding the Fenty Beauty compact and touching up her makeup and it said this is from the source is called misrepresentation not misrepresentation but m-i-s-s representation so follow them on facebook and they said searches for fenty beauty soared after rihanna's super bowl performance garnering an estimated 5.6 million dollars in earned media according to launch metrics that her searches uh soared by 833 percent after promoting it during her Super Bowl halftime performance. So that goes to say, like when a celebrity promotes a product, it doesn't even have to be like, oh, I use Fenty Beauty. It was as simple as somebody handing her her compact and her touching up her makeup before the next phase of the performance. It garnered 833% growth for her business. You know, I think they know what they're doing. I think it was all yeah. part of the show. Product it, placement, right? Yeah, it was all it was very it was, they knew exactly what they're doing. It's all part of the show. It's um It's like when they put like a a Mac computer in front of somebody in like a sitcom and they like open it up and they haven't covered up the icon. You know that that company is paid for exposure. They do? I yeah, know, 100%. I know, I know that on the Dave Ramsey show on his YouTube, he's watching on YouTube, they have their laptops out usually and one of them has got like a Mac and you can tell because the Mac, you know, logo on the back or whatever on top on their MacBook. And uh, I do know that like a lot of the uh, reality shows will cover up all the major brand labels, right. the Macs, the whatever. Um, That's because those companies haven't paid for product placement. So they're not going to give them free exposure if they haven't paid for the placement. Like, think about it this way. Rihanna could have paid the millions of dollars for a Super Bowl ad to promote her product. Or she simply pulls out her compact and touches up her makeup 
during a performance she wasn't paid for and basically gets her free Super Bowl ad. But could you recognize what the uh, compact makeup was from just for doing that? Was there a logo on there? Uh, yeah, it, it was. Okay. I, I think it was covered up, but she wouldn't have been using anything else other than it's possible. her own. Yeah. When she has her own makeup line, like why else would she have been promoting somebody else? That makes sense. Yeah. It, it so does. I wonder if there was some kind of an agreement in her Super Bowl performance contract that allowed her to self-promote her own products because, you know, I could see how that could have been like a deal breaker for somebody like her. Like, okay, I'm not getting actually paid for this. I get a budget for this, but um, I'm going to have product placement of my own stuff. Never underestimate the power of exposure. And that's why uh, Super Bowl commercial ads, uh, they pay I think it's seven million for a thirty-second spot. Exactly. She got a fifteen-minute halftime performance, pulled out her compact, and made five point six million back. There you go. Almost the price of a commercial. Exactly. But she earned that back. Just so you didn't see any of the commercials at all. No. Oh man, you missed out some good ones. I, I, I love the I commercials. Did. In fact, during the commercials, when everyone's like, you know, talking and getting, my dad's talking about who knows what, I said, "Yeah, quiet, quiet. Commercials on." Commercial, I'll be quiet. I'm trying to watch a commercial. Because you have to focus on what they're saying. Some of these commercials, they have like little monologues and dialogues to them. You're like, I want to watch these. I, I love the Super Bowl commercials. Oh, wait. I did watch the dog one. What? They had two dog ones. It was the farmer's, the farmer's food one for the dogs. The one that's like through the like, dog's eyes. Yeah. The dog's life, like alongside the little girl. And I was like, that's my clover. Well, there was an Amazon one where a dog was like, it's so, such a... Like missing the family coming, like families leave and the dog's looking out the window and like a sad dog face kind of thing out the window. And they, they brought a crate home, but you're thinking the crate is for the dog to go, you know, live in, you know. They're like, probably bringing a new friend. They did. They brought a, brought a new dog in. The dog became best best buddies together. It was so cute. Aww. Yeah. I think it was an Amazon commercial. Yeah. But the Amazon dog delivery? No, it was the Amazon. You can order junk on Amazon, like crates and stuff like that. So they ordered a crate, but in this crate was a dog. I don't like you order dogs in Amazon, but <laughs> I hope not. That was the one I remember. And another one I remember was the Bud Light one was because Bud Light always delivers pretty good. Was it was, you know, that ringtone. You know, it's funny at work when I have to call dispatch, they have the, um, you put on hold, they have this hold music. And it's the same hold music they use in that commercial. Oh. So basically what it was, um, they're on hold, sitting on the couch, ring, the, the music's playing, and the guy goes into the um, fridge, pulls out a couple Bud Lights, cracks them open. And they start dancing to the ringtone to the um hold, the way, mu- hold music. Yes, hold music <laughs> around the couch while drinking the Bud Lights. That's kind of the whole gifs of the commercial. I thought it was cute like that. Oh, okay. So basically drink while you wait. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> or I'm actually making you Down wait. Down a beer while you're on hold with your work. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's what they're saying. So they had some good ones. I mean, I'm trying to think ones that really stood out. That that one kind of remind I like that one. Um, dog ones are always good. I think a dog one did get first place was a dog one. Yeah, that one was really good. And it seemed like it was longer than 30 seconds, but I really enjoyed that one. But it, you know what the thing is, is it was kind of dark. It, the edits on it were kind of darker. So you had to like, it, it didn't look like really bright lighting. And I've been noticing that in some of the commercials where it's, you know, we, we get so used to things being overproduced and overbrightened that when people go normal in terms of like the the editing quality of the video, that it seems so dark, like lo-fi. And it's just interesting to me. I like a lot of bright colors. Me too. The, videos and cut. And, um, and that's why I love about the GoPro cameras when I first got into those. 
was that it took really good video. It, I don't know if it was the aperture or whatever, the, the lens, I don't know. But it was very, everything was bright and clean and clear, like a real bright look to mm-hmm. them. And, and that's how I like my photos too, very bright and, and light and that kind of stuff. So, But that wasn't what that one um, commercial was like. But it's interesting, you know, looking at people's different perspectives on how to create commercials and how they draw in who they believe to be their target audience. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about Super Bowl commercials is you know, it's a very large uh, watching group, like a, a very large audience with lots of different interests. How do you create a um, commercial that's going to kind of create the biggest impact for the largest largest number well, of people? That's why a lot of them go for funny. They go for funny or clever. Some go for sappy or, you know, the awe moment and things mm-hmm. like that, which is great too. But yeah. uh, I think when you do a Super Bowl commercial, it's got to be unbelievable it's got to be we're talking big budget here i mean this just a place the ad is seven million dollars who knows what it costs to actually create these ads i mean they got actors in these things movie stars in these right things. but i heard that ben affleck and j-lo were in like dunkin oh, donuts that one was my favorite that's my absolute favorite because he's working the drive-thru i don't know why but he's working the drive-thru at dunkin donuts and people are like oh i know you i know you and they're like taking selfies with them and he's like trying to work the register and do all this stuff uh-huh. and, and then all of a sudden j-lo comes through the drive-thru and she's like what are you doing here? Is this, is this what you're doing when you say you're at work? He's like, I, I got to go, guys. I got to go. <laughs> she, well, don't forget funny. my donut. Don't forget my coffee <laughs> or whatever. I thought that's, it was great. That's so funny. I'm happy for Ben and J-Lo and um, Benifer. Well, I think it was Benifer with, uh, when he was with uh, Jennifer Gardner, too. Yeah, well, I can two keep Jennys, track of keep Jenny on the block and Jenny from the, I don't know. Anyway, so uh, any words for our listeners for this week? They've heard us rambling about Super Bowl. Well, I hope that you are have a fantastic February. I know as we cross over, we just had uh, Valentine's Day yeah. and um, love is in the air and also a cold chill is in the air. It was raining earlier. <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> I think it does. February is kind of a weird month, you know, where it's kind of cold, but it's rainy still. And like we get a lot of rain down here and don't let it uh, ruin your mood. You know, don't yeah. forget spring is around the corner. 2023 it, is here. Yep. Spring is about to spring forward. We're going to um, get some blossoms coming out soon. So just make sure to stick with us if you're having a low time. Just rewind and listen to one of our fantastic episodes to lift your spirits. And where can they find those old episodes? Well, everything you want to know is at chrisandchristineshow.com. And you can find about our podcast, about our life adventures together, as well as learn more about Chris's services for Podtastic Audio. And you can find out about me with Christine Smith Designs. And we're happy to help you with all of your life needs. Right, Chris? As much as we possibly can, you know, for a small fee of $99999. Eight <laughs> payments of $999 and one extra payment of $29.99. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to us. And we'll be back with you next, next week. week.